Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. I would say to everybody in the industry, if you don't like the way financial regulation is happening in the UK, get involved, lobby, set up your own organisations, join Transparency Task Force, contact your MP, write to the minister. These are the kinds of things that will create change. Today's guest outlines why consumer advocacy should matter to those working in financial services and how those in the sector who agree can best get their voices heard. He details what he would like to change about the UK Markets Watchdog, the Financial Conduct Authority, and UK regulation in general. And he discusses why he believes a derisory compensation package has been offered to investors who fell victim to the failed fund run by former star stockpicker Neil Woodford. Mark Bishop is a consumer activist. Since 2020, he has been volunteering for the Transparency Task Force, a consumer advocacy body on strategy, campaigning and public policy matters. Since 2020, he's also served on the Secretariat of the All-Parliamentary Party Group on Personal Banking and Fairer Financial Services. Hi, Mark. Welcome to Following the Rules. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Let's start with a brief overview of your career to date, how you became involved in the Transparency Task Force and a little bit about the TTF2 for those who might not be familiar with it. Okay, well, I've been a consumer magazine journalist, a media company executive, an entrepreneur, a strategy consultant, and a corporate finance advisor. So I've done a range of different things, none of them really directly connected to being a financial services campaigner, but actually all of them quite useful in contributing the skills and experiences necessary to do it. I have an MBA from Cranfield University School of Management, where I'm a visiting fellow, and I've written a book about private equity. So quite a bizarre background, really, for what I now do. How I came into it is that I invested a sum of money in a product called the Connaught Income Fund Series 1. And many of your listeners will know that that was a scheme that failed because of a combination of misconduct by some people within and outside the industry and negligence on a pretty spectacular scale by one large firm within the industry and also a fairly significant degree of regulatory failure. So when I realised that this scheme essentially had gone, I went onto social media, tried to find other people similarly affected, thankfully found people with very complementary skills to my own. We started to investigate. We found a lot of things that concerned us, set up an action group, and we came to remove various insolvency practitioners and ended up leading the creditor committee. As I began the job of trying to 
investigate what happened and really also to learn how to run an action group, I became aware of other similar cases. And I made contact with people that were running other consumer action groups in cases of financial services, misconduct and regulatory failure. And I started to try and learn from them. And really, over time, I became aware of the need for an overarching consumer advocacy body in this sector. And around that time, I was introduced to Andy Agathangelo, who is the founder of Transparency Task Force, a group of consumers, whistleblowers and honest figures from the industry trying to reform the sector. I was introduced to Andy early 2020. I didn't have that much else to do because of COVID, so began working with him on a voluntary basis. My focus is really on the strategy of the organisation and making the case for legislative and regulatory change in this sector. Okay, well, that's interesting. And the Transparency Task Force, or TTF as it's known, describes itself as a collaborative campaigning community, and it's dedicated to driving up levels of transparency in the global financial services industry. It was founded in 2015. Why is your work as a consumer advocate relevant to the interests of the following the rules audience, which is mostly compliance professionals and regulators? I think that's a really good question, and probably there are three answers to it. The first one is that I believe that most firms in the sector, most individuals working within them, really want the industry to do an outstanding job. It's natural to want to go home at the end of the day and feel you've done a good job, not just for yourself or your family, but for society. And I think people in the financial services industry want it to be trusted and respected. It's not something that's entirely happening at the moment. I also think that when this is the case, everybody gains because consumers and SMEs are confident to transact with the industry. It gains the maximum amount of profitable business. The Treasury maximises tax returns and negative externalities of poor financial services are minimised. So, for example, we all know the elderly couple or person living in a big family home who's afraid to sell because they think if they invested the proceeds, somehow they'd be scammed or they'd lose out. One of the sad things about the financial service industry, which is actually revealed very clearly by the FCA's Financial Lives Survey, which surveys people's attitudes and behaviour in relation to financial services. The most recent survey was published just recently, the perception of consumers is that they don't trust the financial services industry. And yet they are reasonably happy with the firms that they personally transact with. This tells me that the industry is judged by its bad apples and not by the average or the best. So even if you work in a firm that is the average or the best, it's very much in your interests that something is done about the bad apples. And if you agree with me that currently the regulatory environment is quite complacent and slow in dealing with those bad apples, it's very much in your interests that it should work a lot better. And just finally, the third reason why I believe that the work that I and other people do as financial services campaigners should interest people who work in the industry is that sometimes, particularly in some of the smaller firms, it's very difficult to challenge how things are. You might not want to criticise the regulator because you don't want to be on the receiving end of its tongue. And if that's the case, then actually it's very helpful to have a bunch of people here who are largely consumers who are saying the things that you'd like to be saying but can't. Okay. What's topping your to-do list at the TTF currently? I'll talk about things that are taking up the most of my time, which is not necessarily things that are the most important. Often it's the more urgent ones. A really big one is Woodford. We all know what happened. The Woodford Equity Income Fund was gated. It's assets being sold. Allegations that consumers' money was invested in things that they could not reasonably have anticipated for an equity income fund. For example, startup and early stage businesses that not only were not throwing off dividends, but they actually required ongoing 
cash to be subscribed by shareholders in order that they could survive and grow. All sorts of things happened within that business that one might argue shouldn't have happened. But the question there is how it's unwound. Link Fund Solutions, which was the authorised corporate director, is trying to push through a scheme of arrangement under which investors that were trapped in that fund would be paid what we believe is a derisory amount of compensation. We have a lot of concerns about the proposal. Paperwork relating to plans to put a scheme of arrangement before the courts has not consistently been sent to investors by platforms. Some platforms intend voting on clients' behalf. Institutional and private investors will vote together despite having different rights and interests. The institutions are ineligible for the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, the FSCS, a statutory body funded by a levy from financial services firms that provides redress for eligible consumers and small businesses in the case of investment products up to a maximum of £85,000 each. So they are almost guaranteed to be better served by the scheme than by any alternative that results in the FSCS paying out. Measures that are set up supposedly to represent investors seem to be window dressing. The redress is not as large as is claimed. There is nothing for those who lost money but weren't gated. And the compensation for those who were gated is only in respect of the loss of liquidity, not the underlying investment. But actually, the biggest concern is not any of those things. It's that the scheme paperwork is supposed to set out why it's in the interests of investors to accept this proposed redress, which is less than one pound for every pound lost. And the argument should be it's better than any alternative. So the paperwork should look at all of the counterfactuals. It only looks at one counterfactual, which is litigation. Litigation, as they rightly say, could take multiple years. The litigation funders will take a big chunk of it. And the FSCS's position in respect of honouring any award is unclear. The other alternative is a restitution order issued by the FCA to Link Fund Solutions. Link Fund Solutions would clearly not be good for the money. It would become insolvent. There would be a default. This liability would go to the FSCS. That is a well-trodden path. It's not difficult. And given the amount of evidence that the FCA has against Link and the number of years it's been investigating since the fund was gated, because of that, I don't perceive that it needs have a great level of execution risk and yet there's no mention of it in the scheme paperwork and also quite concerning is that the fca appears to be on link's side not that of the consumers it is recommending this scheme to raise chambers the enforcement director has quite overtly said in speech she thinks it's the best deal for consumers perhaps because the fca is concerned about systemic risk if one big acd the biggest in the market were to go under There'd be a lot of work involved in the FCA trying to manage that out and split up the work amongst the other players in the market. So you mentioned the Woodford saga, just to add to that, more than 300,000 investors in the then star stockbroker Neil Woodford's fund lost their savings after he built large positions in hard-to-trade shares and was unable to sell assets quickly enough to meet withdrawals and ultimately gated that fund, prevented investors from taking their money out. And Financial Conduct Authority's investigation into the matter was criticised for taking a substantial amount of time, although ultimately ultimately concluded earlier this year with an agreement, as you've referenced, to pay back some of the losses to the fund's investors. But as you said, not all, and, and you're arguing that that amount is inadequate. Yeah, second big thing I'm working on is Blackmore Bond. You've probably seen the episode of Panorama that was broadcast about it in August 2022. It was called the Billion Pound Savings Scandal. And it alleged, amongst other things, that the FCA ignored alerts from a really credible whistleblower, Paul Carlier. He's a seasoned city trader, twice whistleblower in the sector, and an expert witness in these sorts of cases. And by one in a million chance, 
He was renting space in serviced offices. The other side of the glass partition from him were the scammers, and he could hear them selling the product. He wrote to the FCA and said, this is going on. Please come into my office and listen to the scammers and then take them out. FCA refused to do so. Tried again the next year, still refused to do so. Paul worked with us at Transparency Task Force. He and I have become concerned that the FCA's public pronouncements about the case departed from our understanding of the truth. So we used freedom of information requests to try and expose this and help the victims make a case for redress. The sum lost is around £47 million. Within days of each other, we were both refused access to information under the Freedom of Information Act and told our requests were vexatious. That more precisely in my case, that my history of use of the Act and my wider interactions with the FCA are vexatious. It's absolutely remarkable. So we now both find ourselves fighting first-tier tribunal cases against the FCA, in which it is spending serious amounts on specialist counsel to try and keep the information under wraps. So I am spending huge amounts of time trying to get this thing removed, partly because I want to get the information for Blackmore Bond victims, partly because I want to hold the FCA to account for trying to run away from the fact that it's screwed up in this particular case, but also, frankly, so that I can make freedom of information requests from the FCA in the future without them being rejected as vexatious, which is where we are at the moment. And the final piece of work that I'm doing is You've probably seen that the National Audit Office is carrying out a review of the FCA, first time since 2014, and I'm writing a piece for Transparency Task Force to submit to that review. Mm-hmm. Okay, so lots to keep you busy there. Am I correct in thinking that the TTF's goal in relation to Woodford is to push for the FCA to rethink the compensation scheme being recommended? Yes, yeah, certainly if the FCA were to put pressure on LINK, to include in the scheme paperwork an impartial and thorough evaluation of a restitution order as an alternative course of action, then I think very few consumers would vote for the offer that's being put to them because I think they would get substantially more money and there would be much less execution risk if they went down this route. And there is a court hearing in relation to this compensation scheme being recommended in early October. So time is of the essence of what do you expect to happen between now and then or what would you like to see happen? The honest answer is I don't know. There are a lot of plates that are spinning at the moment. We put a number of questions to the FCA about its position in relation to this. And so far, the time of recording this, it hasn't responded. I hope that those responses will be fulsome and that they will include some kind of acceptance that there is a problem here and it ought to get involved. The FCA has a wonderful privilege that is not afforded to you or me or most organisations in the private or public sector, which is essentially it can determine how much revenue it receives, because as far as I can see, it determines the level of the levy. So if it needs more money, it can get more money. And for that reason, actually, the argument that we don't have enough resources is, in my view, quite a weak one. I would not accept it. Also, the levy is paid by the industry. And I absolutely understand that most of the time the industry would like to minimise that liability. But if the levy is too low and the standard of regulation is therefore inadequate and consumers suffer losses as a result, there isn't a way that the consumers can recharge those losses to the regulator because the regulator is immune from civil liability, except in two very narrow sets of circumstances. The first is human rights breach. and The second is bad faith. I don't believe there's ever been a successful court case under either of those. Human rights, unfortunately, the way the law works, in practice, you have to bring a case within weeks of finding out about the alleged breach. The problem with that in financial services is you don't have a claim unless the FCA has completed its investigations and tried to get the money out of the firm. Generally, those things take multiple years. By then, your human rights claim is already dead. 
The second one is bad faith. Again, I don't believe there's been a claim that succeeded. But the legal advice that I've received, and I stress I'm no lawyer, is that it's very difficult to bring such a claim, partly because the definition of bad faith in the context of a regulatory claim is unclear. There's no precedence. But also because bad faith ideally means somebody taking a bung. So being bribed, accepting a monetary gift in expectation or reward of an improper behaviour. Now, I, nobody has ever suggested that anybody at the FCA has taken a bung. Therefore, that definition of bad faith would never be met. But if we take, for example, the Woodford case, what do we know about that case? We know that the FCA knew that what was originally Capital Financial Managers is now Link Fund Solutions, failed to spot significant problems twice in Arch Crew and then in Connaught. And a reasonable person might say, for that reason, this firm is defective. It's not performing in accordance with the rules and regulations that the FCA is there to uphold. But it came out with just a censure because it was willing to pay some money to the victims of both of those cases. And the FCA, perhaps reasonably, wanted that to happen and perhaps unreasonably realised that it would take the pressure off the FCA if it could deliver some level of redress for the victims. So it didn't take a bung for itself. It was able to salve its reputation by going down the route of regulatory laxity. And that regulatory laxity, each time it happens, stores up losses for another group of consumers. So I can't absolutely prove that when Waystone Group buys what is currently Link Fund Solutions, it will still be a defective firm. And one day in a few years time, there will be another fund collapse that happens on its watch. But I wouldn't be surprised if it happens. And if I were one of those people that was affected, I would be looking to sue the FCA. But it's very difficult because it has this exemption. Mm. So there is clearly a lot that you will be looking to recommend as part of your input into the National Audit Office review of the FCA that you also mentioned was topping your to-do list currently in your role at the TTF. And I would like to get into those recommendations further into this conversation. Now, we're in the midst of a fundamental rethink of UK financial regulation as the UK government strives to keep the city as competitive as possible. Are there any opportunities that you think lawmakers and regulators have missed? Yes, absolutely I do. We at Transparency Task Force lobbied very hard during the passage of the Financial Services and Markets Bill, as it was, through both houses. And there were three big things that we argued for. The first is that there should be a duty of care owed by authorised persons to consumers. We felt we were on really solid ground in asking for this because actually there was a clause in the Financial Services Act 2021 which obliged the FCA to consult on bringing forward a duty of care and then to implement rules based on that consultation. And they did a really clever sleight of hand. They said, here is the consumer duty. We believe this is a duty of care. Do you like it? And of course, people would argue with details of it. It could be better in this area, worse in that area. But overall, they said, yeah, we'll have a duty of care. But actually, I believe that they were misdirected because the fundamental flaw of that consultation exercise was that the FCA said, we believe that the consumer duty is a duty of care. And it absolutely isn't. And it's not me saying that. We had Ian Mitchell KC write the section of our consultation response that dealt with this. And he set out in law why it's a different matter. So a duty of care is an obligation on one party to avoid causing reasonably foreseeable harm to another party, breach of which gives rise to a civil action or tort. Now, the problem with the consumer duty is it specifies over 160 odd pages. What is this duty of care? What is standoff behavior that is required? which is great, except that, of course, it means there are lots of exemptions. And then it goes to specifically exclude a private right of action. 
So if there is a breach of the consumer duty, the only way that the consumer can get any redress is if the FCA goes down the enforcement and restitution route. And as we know, it almost never does the restitution route. So redress is almost certainly not going to happen. And it's already signaled in respect of the consumer duty that it will take a light touch approach to enforcement in the early days. Overall, I think that the consumer duty has created a large compliance burden for the financial services industry's good actors, but it's actually created a relatively little benefit for consumers. Who's gained? Well, in the short term, I suppose compliance professionals have done so. It's boosted demand for their labour, which has perhaps increased salaries for those who are employed, who also has gained probably as the bad actors in the industry who have been protected from the imposition of a duty of care backed by private right of action, which would have been a nightmare for them because it would have empowered Britain's 50 million adult consumers to become their own enforcement department going after the firms that do them harm. So that's the first thing, private right of action attached to a duty of care. Second thing is a thing I've talked about already, a right of redress for regulatory failure. This can happen by removing the exemption from civil liability. It can also happen by reforming the complaint scheme. You probably know in 2020, just as COVID came, the regulators uh, launched a consultation led by the FCA into changes to the complaint scheme. Huge numbers of consumers organised by us at Transparency Task Force and consumer organisations responded saying, there needs to be a right of redress, even if it can't happen through uh, civil litigation, at least it can happen through the complaint scheme. And we know that we won on the numbers because there were so many consultation responses that said this. But unfortunately, in the last few weeks, the FCA announced the revised complaint scheme and it's still hedged around with so many caveats that in practice, we don't think anybody will ever be compensated a material amount of money for regulatory failure. Only just a few quid for inconvenience or hurt feelings. I understand that litigation is expensive, both for consumers and for the FCA. But if the FCA is genuinely concerned about this, then the solution is to revise the complaint scheme so that it specifically can deal with the question of compensating consumers for losses caused by regulatory failure. The third thing that we proposed was a consumer oversight body. The FCA, in theory, has a, a consumer panel, but it appoints the members of that panel. And it, it doesn't use its core right, which is to publicly make representations to the FCA, which could be criticisms that the FCA would then publicly respond to. It's really used as a sounding board by the FCA, and it focuses mostly on policy rather than on operations. And it's the operations that usually leads to the bad outcomes. So we felt that there was a need for there to be a consumer oversight body financial regulators supervisory council we called it and the idea is that it would with the treasury make the key appointments of chair and chief executive other people in the regulatory family the directors of the financial ombudsman service for example which are appointed by the fca it would also commission independent reviews when there is an allegation of regulatory failure so at the moment when these things are commissioned it happens very rarely and they are in effect run start to finish by the fca so they get to choose who marks their homework so Actually, what comes out isn't really an independent review. It's the review. And we think it should be independent. And we think there's probably be more of them. So this is another great thing that could come out of having a consumer oversight body. And I understand people in the industry will think, is this giving too much power to consumers? Well, I don't think so, because... Even before the Financial Services Marketing Act 2023, there was one consumer panel and there were three industry ones. Now there's another three industry ones and still only one consumer panel. There is an imbalance here. And given that actually consumers really 
we pay the levy because it represents a cost for all authorised firms and therefore it puts up the price of the services that we buy. And we are the expected beneficiaries as well. So if good regulation happens, we benefit. If bad regulation happens, we bear the costs. So it's not unreasonable, I think, for consumers to have some special and greater level of representation than is happening currently. So those are the three big things. And although it's not confirmed, it's very likely that we will reiterate the case for these things in the National Audit Office report. Okay, that's interesting. And just for those that might not be aware, the consumer duty is a new consumer principle that requires firms to act to deliver good outcomes for retail customers. It's a cross-cutting set of rules. It requires firms to act in good faith and avoid causing foreseeable harm and enable and support customers to pursue their financial objectives. It came into effect in July and it does require a complete mindset shift really for firms that are subject to these rules. So it will be very interesting to see how full compliance with that has been and what the FCA does next to ensure that those that aren't fully in compliance pull their finger out. The consumer panel that you mentioned is an independent statutory body. It was set up to represent the interests of consumers and the development of policy for the regulation of financial services. It's works to advise and challenge the FCA from the early stage of its policy development to ensure that they take into account the consumer interests as they implement financial services rules and policies. So there are a number of things that you are seeking to change in the proposals that have been put forward to date as UK government rethinks UK financial regulation. What do you think of measures that have been introduced already? Well, I'm not a big fan of the additional statutory panels. I think they've made an imbalance even greater. I'd also like to talk about this growth and competitiveness objective A consultation was launched by the Treasury about how we can measure success on this metric. And one of the things that I thought was really unusual about it is that it kept going on about the issue of time taken to authorise new individuals and firms onto the register of the firms and individuals that are authorised to conduct regulated financial services activities in the UK. And they said, well, in Barbados, you can get somebody approved within a week. It's not right that it should be six weeks or three months or whatever it is here. And when I read that, I thought, actually, they're idiots. Because if you wanted to create a very fast authorizations process, you could easily do it. You create a website where people put in the name, the email address, etc., and they press submit. And immediately an email comes back. Congratulations, you've been authorized. It would be instantaneous. That's much faster than Barbados. But it is reasonably foreseeable that this will lead to fairly high levels of misconduct. So it's not a good idea because, as I said at the very beginning, I perceive that the industry is judged by its bad behaviour and not by the, the average or the good. So if you want the financial services industry to grow internationally, and we should, then absolutely we should be interested in having a standard financial regulation that is the best in the world. Okay. The competitiveness agenda is something that was introduced by the UK government in the Financial Services and Markets Act 2023. And what it does is it requires the FCA to ensure that the way in which it goes about its day job also factors in the need for the city to be as competitive as possible. It does not need to be a priority. It's a secondary objective, but it is something that they now need to have an eye on as they implement their policies. So again, it's a mindset shift for the regulator. That competitiveness agenda is coming in as the FCA is already arguably overburdened by a huge number of rule changes coming down the track as the UK government rethinks UK financial regulation and also an increased workload coming off the back of Brexit as jobs that were done by EU regulators come onto the FCA's workload. How equipped do you think that the FCA is to handle this volume of regulatory change? Well, I tend toward the view that government should stop giving the FCA new powers and new responsibilities 
at least for now, and hold it to account to fully use the powers and perform the functions that it already has. In terms of context, I'm reminded that the FCA has been through what it calls its transformation program. And the program was really an attempt by Nikolati to stamp his authority and identity on the FCA. So the FCA that we have now is a post-transformation FCA. This is as good as it's going to get, pretty much. I have some concerns. For me, this is about culture and leadership. It's not about powers. So one example would be the supervision hub. This is the consumer-facing contact centre that is set up to handle inbound inquiries from the public. Now, bear in mind, 67 million people in the UK, there are 50 people working in that supervision hub. Most of them are at associate level. They are new to the FCA. They're new to financial services and to regulation. Often they are graduates straight out of university or they are being brought in even without degrees. Is it really sensible to have your cheapest, most recent employees facing the great British public when your organisation is judged on the basis of their performance? And doubly so if actually one mistake by them when they triage an inbound call could lead to billions of pounds being lost by consumers. Seems to me quite reckless, actually. The average salary in there, I think, is about 30k. And if there's 50 of them, that means they're about £1.5 million worth of payroll. If you doubled or tripled the salary, it would cost you an extra £1.5 or £3 million. Relative to the total income of the FCA, that's small change. If I were running that organisation, I would take a different approach to that supervision hub. The next thing, very similar thing, is whistleblowing. You probably saw that quite recently, the FCA announced the results of a survey it undertook into whistleblowing. And there were just over a thousand whistleblowers who contacted the FCA in 2021. It surveyed them in the spring of 2022. For some strange reason, it sent this survey to only 68 of them. Now, of the 68, only 21 completed the survey in full. And of those 21, four of them were somewhat or very satisfied with how they and their evidence have been treated. The FCA grouped together the very and the somewhat. They should have been separate. So we will never know how many of them were very satisfied. We can only say that of 1,014 people, they were able to find four that were at least somewhat satisfied. Now, this really concerns me because failure to listen to whistleblowers, to act on their information and to treat it appropriately has been a consistent pattern of failure at the FCA. If you look at Blackmore Bond, I've talked about Paul Carlier, there was another whistleblower who was an IFA that may have been even further whistleblowers that we don't know about, ignored. Very recently, the FCA said, we will learn from the survey that we've done into whistleblowers. We will improve our act. Even after that, it's now become public that in the WealthTech case, WealthTech was a wealth management platform and there are allegations that client monies were extracted from their accounts and used by one of the principals who has also a very interesting pursuit of horse racing and likes running nightclubs in the north of England. A really credible whistleblower alerted the FCA to serious problems two years almost before the thing went belly up. It took that long for them to act. So the whistleblowing thing needs to be fixed on authorizations now run by Emily Shepard, also Chief Operating Officer. She came on your podcast and I listened to it. One of the things that she said that worried me greatly is that the FCA is now outsourcing some of its analysis of these 
applications for authorization. Now, if I was running a nightclub somewhere, what I would do is either employ directly the people on the gate or I would choose ones that I trust uh, because otherwise they can let in the drug dealers who then sell the drugs in my venue, who then get me raided by the police and get me shut down. Now, effectively, in authorizations, you're the people on the gate. So those things must be done to a very high standard and I would say be done in-house. So it worries me a lot. The culture doesn't, in my mind, appear to have changed. The next thing that I think that needs to change is approach to investigations. The one FCA investigation that your average Joe in the street knows about is the one about debanking because of Nigel Farage. Now, we've had a quick and dirty investigation by the FCA, which basically says nothing to see here move along. But it does that because they wrote to the banks and the building societies and said, tell us who you've debanked and why. Surprisingly enough, they've said, we've debanked people who are rude to our staff, don't use their bank accounts anymore, they're suspected of money laundering. And we're entitled to do that. What they haven't done is to say to the public, if you've been debanked, write in and tell us about it. Then take at least a sample of those cases and go to the bank in question and say, this is what Mrs. Smith says from Nuneaton. What's your side of the story? And by the way, we might need to look at your records because we need to find out whether you're telling the truth or not. So that instinct to believe one group of people and not even talk to the other group. Those kinds of things are a big problem and they tend to point to groupthink, a lack of diversity of thinking. Where is the voice of the consumer? Okay, you've talked through what changes you think lawmakers or the FCA should implement to enable it to better manage its workload. Is there anything that you would like to add there? It's not only about the workload, it's also about other things. The first one is culture, the second is leadership, and the third is accountability and transparency. Mm -hmm. So when an organisation is not functioning as it might ideally be, usually there are cultural problems. And organisation culture is really defined as the often unstated assumptions within an organisation governing how we behave when people aren't looking. When I interact with FCA employees individually, in the main, I find them to be intelligent, thoughtful individuals who want to do a good job. But collectively, my impression of the organisation is that it's often defensive, complacent, and even captured. It does seem to be an organisation that has quite a top-down, control-led structure. And there are pros and cons to that. But when you have that type of culture, I think that leadership matters more than in a normal organisation. So, for example, who do they hire, promote and sack? Which behaviours are rewarded, discouraged and punished? There is really also a need to look at accountability and transparency. I've already mentioned a couple of transformative ideas. The right to redress, actually, for me, is the most powerful one, because at the moment, consumers largely cannot get redress for regulatory failure. If they could, my God, there would be a huge caseload of claims. The floodgates would be opened and the FCA would come under enormous pressure from the industry to raise its game because the industry doesn't want to pay for regulatory failure. So there'd be an alignment of economic interests for the first time. Everybody would want there not to be regulatory failure. And for the first time, you'd be able to measure it because the costs would all be in one place. They would be borne by the FCA and its levy payers. So that's about transparency on accountability. I talked about the idea of this consumer oversight body. Together, these would create an environment that incentivizes change and punishes resistance. Okay, and on the right to redress, you mentioned that that would open the floodgates in terms of claims. Is there not a risk that that would then distract and further burden an arguably overburdened FCA? Well, that's a really interesting argument, and it's probably one that the FCA would make. In a sense, it would distract them because it would force them to look backwards at past cases. But I actually think that's a really good thing. I'll explain why. You're probably aware of, in operations management, there is a tool called the Toyota Production System, which was a way that Toyota and then other Japanese manufacturers improved on mass production by making it more efficient. 
And one of the key features of this Toyota production system is called Kaizen. Kaizen means closed loop continuous improvement. And the idea is this, in a traditional car factory, if you produce a defective car, you think, oh, well, never mind. There's another department at the end of the production line that will try and fix it. Whereas in this Toyota production system, if there is a defect and it's spotted immediately, the production line is stopped and everybody at previous stations goes to look at the defect and they try and work out how it happened and how they can fix the underlying cause. So it's a closed loop system whereby we don't repeat errors. The FCA will say, oh, yes, these reviews that we've had, they are lessons learned. But firstly, these reviews happen perhaps five years or more after the events in question. And secondly, who can prove that the lessons were learned? I've talked about many things like the policing of the regulatory perimeter, whistleblowing, the supervisions hub, all of those things where I've made the case that actually things haven't improved, anything they've got worse. But if there is an economic cost attached to not learning the lesson, by God, that lesson will be learned and there will be implementation. So making the FCA look backwards at what it did wrong and making it realise that there's a continuing open wound of liability until it's fixed, those are really good things. And we're not going to fix the FCA until we do those things. Okay. You were also involved in the All-Parliamentary Party Group on Personal Banking and Fairer Financial Services. Could you tell us a bit more about your role there and also what's been keeping you busy in that context? Well, I'm on the secretariat of that organisation, which is provided on a no-charge basis by Transparency Task Force. Every APPG has to have a purpose statement. This one, it is to identify aspects of personal banking and financial services, whether service providers or regulators have not delivered or are not delivering excellence and appropriate consumer protection, to facilitate and encourage all stakeholders to work together to resolve past and present shortcomings and to bring about positive changes. So I'm not here as a spokesperson for the APPG, but I can refer to its activities that are in the public domain. The really big one is that in 2021, it launched a call for evidence about the FCA. And the idea was that it's for consumers, it's for SMEs mistreated by banks, whistleblowers. But very soon after it came into being, we got an email from somebody who worked at the FCA. And they said, we would like to respond to this as well. But none of the question sets you've got really works for us. So we work with that individual to change the questions. So they would work for FCA employees. We put them on the website. We asked that individual to tell others about it. And sure enough, we got a decent number of responses from FCA employees past and present. And that was really fascinating. I think earlier on, I described to you the organisation culture, how it's quite top down at times, particularly on key issues, how it's quite prescriptive. They also talk about diversity. There's a lot of diversity of identity, but very little diversity of opinion. And that, I think, is a problem. Diversity of opinion can come through identity. As a woman, you may see the world differently than I do as a man. That's not unreasonable. But actually, diversity of opinion in the round is about lived experience. I can see value in that type of diversity, and I don't see it happening much at the FCA currently. Okay. There's a lot that's keeping you busy. What advice would you have to others wishing to get more involved in consumer activism? I'll say this only partly in jest. Don't, don't. Why bother? There are a lot of powerful forces ranged against you. Nobody's going to pay you to do it. It's a thankless task. If you are going to do it, be strategic. You can't fight every battle and you have to focus on the underlying problems and not the symptoms. What I would love as a campaigner is to be in a scenario in which somebody comes to us, say Transparency Task Force, and says, this really bad thing was done to me by the financial services industry. And we just email a known contact at the FCA who says, oh, we're already aware of that one. It'll be sorted by the end of the week. Or thank you, we didn't know about that one. We'll get onto it now. And a few days later, it's sorted. 
That's what good regulation would look like. But we're a very, very long way from that at the moment. And we have constructive ideas of how those things can be improved. Okay. So for listeners to this podcast who are thinking, I would like to do something, if not consumer activism, what advice would you have as to what they could do to further the goals that you've discussed in this podcast? Well, one is join Transparency Task Force. Even if you don't actually do anything, to be blunt, we need your money. The other one actually is a really big issue for the industry, and that is lobbying. Why did it happen that the Financial Services and Markets Bill didn't incorporate the amendments that we wanted and did incorporate ones that were perhaps unhelpful for the standards of the industry? Well, I think it comes down to lobbying. When the Financial Services and Markets Bill had its first reading in the Commons, John Glenn spoke, and there was a, a passage, you can look it up in Hansard, which actually shocked me. He basically said, I would like to thank people from the financial services industry who helped me draft this bill. Where were the consumers that were helping you draft that bill? I don't believe that the really big firms and the lobbying organisations necessarily represent the majority of people in this industry. So I would say to everybody in the industry, if you don't like the way financial regulation is happening in the UK, get involved, lobby, set up your own organisations, join Transparency Task Force, contact your MP, write to the minister. These are the kinds of things that will create change. And it's not just now. What will happen next year? The odds are there's going to be change of government. Some of the stuff I read about the Labour front bench worries me. The shadow business secretary, Jonathan Reynolds, has got HSBC and Matt West's Condes on his team. What's good for those banks is not necessarily good for the economy, let alone the financial services industry. So there is a risk that what's going on on both sides of the political equation is some degree of lobbyist capture of politicians. The politicians think they're helping the economy and the financial services sector, but they're just helping the people who pay for the lobbyists. Okay. You mentioned John Glenn, who's the former city minister who led the drafting of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2023. Lastly and generally, what's one upcoming or current challenge you believe not enough people are paying attention to? Well, it's the statistical probability that there's going to be change of government. And a lot of people might think a change of government is intrinsically a good thing because it's a new broom. But actually, it might be a worse broom than the one we've got. And I'm not into financial services because of an interest in politics. And Transparency Task Force is absolutely not party political in any sense. It has people in it from all points on the political spectrum. But outside of this, I have political opinions, as most people do. It seems to me that the big debate in the UK is not the right versus the left. It's actually corporatism versus democracy. And corporatism at the moment is probably on the rise. And essentially what's going to come out of the next general election, I think whoever wins is a government that believes that the interests of the banks equal the interests of the financial services industry, equal the interests of the economy. And that's a very flawed equation. Okay. Well, there has been a huge amount of food for thought offered through this podcast, Mark. Thank you very much for your time today. No, thank you for giving me this opportunity. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.